Authoring a PhD by Patrick Dunleavy. Chapter 3 Four Patterns of Explanation I have yet to see any problem, however complicated, which, when you looked at it, right away, did not become still more complicated. Paul Anderson When you try to communicate a set of connected information to someone else, there are only a limited number of ways that you can do it. If your chosen way cuts across the other person's expectations, then crossed wires may occur in the communication. This problem is made worse when your audience does not listen intently to every twist and turn of your account. For instance, people of different genders famously tend to choose incompatible modes of communication. Most women like to give and receive process-organized explanations, often running through the history of an event or an interaction from beginning to end in narrative succession. But most men prefer to receive bottom-line information first. They want to know at the start what the key point of a story is, and only then will they be ready to listen much more selectively to the detail of how the story's outcome ended up as it did. Hence, men easily get annoyed by what they code as woman being rabbiting on. Equally, women often get turned off by men's overly terse and inaccessible explanations of complex phenomena. A variant of this particular contrast in modes of communication also runs through two of the alternative patterns discussed here. My thesis is that in the humanities and social sciences there are only four fundamental ways of handling long text-based explanations which I shall discuss in turn. These organizing patterns are descriptive, analytic, argumentative, and a matrix pattern. Combining elements of any two of the other three approaches. Descriptive Explanations Suppose that I am asked to give an account of the room where I am sitting and writing these words, which is my home study. Figure 3.5 shows the main features of the room, which are reasonably complex. A descriptive mode of explaining something is to take the way that Things are organized externally or exogenously to me 
and to then use that pattern to structure the sequence of what I say. For instance, in explaining about my study, I might start at some particular point, like the door, and then decide to sweep my arm around the room in a particular direction, clockwise in this case, listing everything that comes into my line of sight as I do, as shown in figure 3.5a. Here I might say, first there is a white door, and next to it in a clockwise direction is a green painted wall and a grey beaten up sofa, and above it a notice board with papers pinned on it, a CD rack, then a series of long bookshelves with four drawers filling cabinets underneath, and then a printer, an old desktop PC, and a new laptop on a desk surrounded by papers, then a window and three frames, and so on. This listing account already illustrates some obvious deficiencies of a descriptive way of explaining things. The sequence of objects being named is united in only one way, namely proximity in the room. The things I list are next to each other, but in every other way the different objects described together are jumbled up randomly and unpredictably. The list may work okay if readers get to see figure 3.5, but without this visual support the list could be very hard to take in and to visualize. The account I give of my study could also easily become very long-winded and hard to organize mentally. These problems may perhaps lead you to think that I am setting up a straw person to knock down here, and that in practice in advanced humanities and social science research it would be very hard to find people utilizing this kind of pattern of explanation. Think again. Most theses in these disciplines still follow a descriptive approach, in the sense defined above, in that their fundamental organization is set externally to the author by the way things are arranged in the real world. Key forms of a descriptive approach are as follows. Narrative theses, which follow the pattern of a storyline set by an external work or by another author. For example, a critical exposition discussing Act 1 of a play, followed by Act 2, Act 3, and so on. This pattern is popular in literature studies. Chronological theses, which essentially let a historical sequence dictate their structure beginning at the beginning and going on until they come to the end. This pattern is prevalent in historical studies in related fields. Institutional theses, or those with the guidebook structure, which replicate the pattern of an organization chart or the relationships among different institutions or the structure of a piece of legislation or a set of regulations in order to trace out its working in loving detail. This pattern is popular in law, public administration, social policy, and so on. Other descriptive patterns can be envisaged, for instance, spatially organized work in geographical studies. This commonly found at whole thesis level is the most popular descriptive pattern in master's level or undergraduate essays, 
the random sequence of authors. Here the order in which sources are discussed and their relative weighting in the essay are both determined by which sources students were able to access in the library that week and the time available to do the essay. So a lot is written about sources which were accessed first, rather less about sources which the student only had a short time to absorb. And least of all is said about sources which the student is only pretending to have read. But even the random sequence of authors, pattern, often recurs over sections of a thesis. In lower level university studies, with exams as a key assessment method, and even for taught courses at PhD level, adopting a descriptive approach to organizing your ideas and sequencing your work is popular but very damaging habit. It is prevalent because it seems a lazy way. You just pick up an already given or perhaps obvious structure existing out there and organize your work around it. It is damaging because the descriptive approach demands a very high load of facts or other materials to make it work well. And yet it often becomes hard for authors to control and hence ends up looking very disorganized. Just as the things which sit next to each other in my study form an eclectic list, hard for readers to follow or understand. So things which sit next to each other in historical time or institutional space may be all jumbled up thematically or analytically. But in big book theses, these difficulties are greatly ameliorated. The space and time constraints of lower level university studies are not so pressing at PhD level. Indeed, they may not seem to be present at all to beginning students. At doctoral level, descriptive explanations can work better because you can assemble the mass of facts and evidence needed to make the approach look comprehensive and non-naive. In addition, some kinds of descriptive explanation are clearly popular with and accessible to a wide range of readers, especially historical and narrative writing. The most chronological of all A to Z storylines are biographies, which sell very widely. Yet to make a descriptive structure work in most of the humanities and soft social sciences, in fact, demands very high-level authoring skills. In very subtle ways, you need to first articulate and then weave into your meta-level descriptive account either analytic concepts or argumentative themes. This thematization of what seems to be just narrative chronologies or guidebook texts is an art that is harder than it looks. If you have not reached this high level of attainment, then you should always examine carefully the three alternative approaches below before concluding that you can successfully make a descriptive structure work in your thesis. The danger is that your thesis argument flounders in a disorganized fashion, presenting a jumble of complexities in which a single not very important feature is prioritized over everything else.
Such theses can often seem to be structured by no clear internal or intellectual pattern of organization. Analytic explanations. It is not difficult to break up and reorganize a complex description into more analytic headings. The key step is to use organizing categories conjured out of your own brain rather than a sequence of ideas given to you externally. For instance, an analytic approach to describing my home study is shown in figure 3.5b where I might structure my account around the following headings. The physical size, shape and features of the room, basically rectangular with little add-on bay window. The services in the room, the windows, ventilation lights, central heating, plug points, etc. The hard or fixed furnishings, shelves, bookcases, immovable heavy filing cabinets, etc. And the soft or variable furnishings, curtains, carpets, movable furniture, PCs, and electronic gearbooks, CDs, etc. These different categories do not sit out there in the real world for me to pick up, ready to use. Instead, they are mental categories of my own choosing. But on the other hand, they are not rocket science and they did not take ages to devise. I hope that these distinctions would not need a lot of explanation to be accepted as useful and reasonably familiar by most readers. But if I now run over what there is to see in my home study using these headings, I'm pretty sure that most people will see this account as much clearer, as much better organized than the descriptive approaches almost random sequencing as well as providing key principles for explaining why sets of things are treated together, the headings also capture clearly my value-added contribution and thus help to personalize the account. Three main types of analytic structures are used in humanities and social sciences theses. These are listed below. Periodized historical or narrative accounts break away from a beginning-to-end chronology and instead chunk up the storyline into a number of clear periods. The characteristic of each period can then be treated more synoptically. The crucial transitions are from one period to another. They are separated out for focused treatment, while the more ephemeral ebb and flow of less important events within each period is given less emphasis. Systematic accounts disaggregate complex processes into their component parts, as in my study example above. An overall set of phenomena is split into different components and each aspect is treated using appropriate concepts, theories, methods, and evidence for that category. For instance, you could split historical processes into separate 
economic, political, cultural and social changes and develop different, mo different models of each. As well as an account of how they interconnect. Or you could analyze a novel or a play in terms of characters and their interactions or identify different elements, myths or themes woven through a narrative. Causal analyses go further than simply handling different aspects under category headings. They seek to reconstruct complex multi-causation processes by grading and sifting how influences are patterned, weighing causes against each other, distinguishing long-term and short-term, or necessary and sufficient causes. Very sophisticated approaches here may trace out a complete algorithm, an analytical model of the processes that are being studied. An analytic structure has many advantages, so long as the set of organizing categories being used is simple and robust, picking out clearly distinguishable sets of phenomena in very clear-cut ways. To organize a whole thesis, you need a fairly restricted structure of big, broad concepts. Fine-grain or subtle distinctions that take ages to explain are not suitable for this top-level organizing task, or indeed for providing an internal structure for chapters. Robust organizing categories should also be recognizable ideas with which readers can easily connect. Both these requirements may seem to limit the scope for you to personalize your thesis organization. They often seem restrictive for new authors who are convinced of the uniqueness of their individual approach, but it is perfectly feasible to impress clear views on your chapter plan without lurching off into idiosyncrasy or impenetrable distinctions. Once you have an analytic structure of chapters, it is also important not to follow through unquestioningly with a further analytic way of carving up material inside each chapter. Do not overdo the analysis. At its limit, an ultra-analytic thesis can resemble a fairly unique and awful item of British cuisine, the canned fruit cocktail. The dish consists of different kinds of tinned fruit, all cut up into small cubes and mixed together and then completely covered in a sugary syrup. When you eat a mouthful of canned fruit cocktail, you may know intellectually that you are consuming different types of fruit but the tastes are so effectively homogenized that you will have difficulty identifying what any given cube consists of. The analogous danger in academic life is that you wrench apart connected phenomena to such a detailed extent that your readers lose any grip on how the parts connect as a whole. For instance, 
If you analyze a chronological process into separate analytic components and then analyze each of these in turn into subcomponents, readers may lose any working sense of how the processes being described operated over time and hence find no clear narrative storyline at all. Overextended analytic arguments can also produce very formalistic patterns of organizing material with multi-layered typologies or sets of categories being expounded which are very remote from ordinary knowledge, ways of looking at problems. In some technical or highly theoretical areas, very formalized treatments may be acceptable, even expected, especially in the parts of social sciences and philosophy. But outside these areas, they can easily look off-putting or impenetrable, especially where an author uses unfamiliar organizing concepts. Argumentative explanations. Organizing your account argumentatively is again easy to do. First you gather together all the points which might be made in one interpretation or intellectual position and express them coherently. Next you assemble an alternative or opposed interpretation originating from a different intellectual position and seek to better explain the phenomena being focused on. The sequence of materials becomes one of pro-arguments, then anti-arguments, of thesis and antithesis, and perhaps synthesis. Figure 3.5c shows how I might do this when giving an account of my home study. Here I could set out all of the points that I like about my study, perhaps sequencing them in terms of their importance to me and evaluating the room. I like my study because it is spacious, conveniently shaped, equipped with lots of walls, suitable for storage, newly set up, restfully decorated, well lit, quiet, set a bit apart from the rest of the house and so on. Then I might consider all the problems I still have with the study such as the amount of clutter I've managed to jam into it already, my inability to keep it neatly organized, or its patchwork feeling. The study was not equipped in one go as real offices are, instead its current state represents a layered accumulation of different bits of kit that I've been able to afford at different stages of my career and never had the heart or the finances to scrap and start again from scratch. An argumentative approach will usually look very well organized for readers so long as you distinguish clear intellectual positions or sides in a controversy using labels and schools of thought already recognized. By definition, an argumentative approach focuses on a debate or disagreement and tends to project into sharp focus your value added. It will also usually look personalized especially where you have taken care to frame or configure your central thesis question in a way or from an angle which is particular to your work. 
This approach will also handle multiple theoretical positions or relational arguments explicitly. Normally an important feature of humanities or social sciences research. There are also some disadvantages of an argumentative approach at doctoral level. Pro and anti-arguments, thesis and antithesis oppositions are usually pairs and only rarely triples. So argumentative categories may not be enough to organize eight chapters. People sometimes react to this difficulty by trying to handle many more interpretations at once. Some students, especially those who have carried out overextended literature searches somehow, lapse into thinking that at doctoral level they must cover all possible interpretive positions, even if they are very numerous. In fact, this option is neither feasible nor desirable in an argumentative approach. A doctorate is basically a monograph, treating a single subject intensively. It is not a textbook still less a work of reference. Trying to show how four or five perspectives would handle a particular problem or interpret the same set of phenomena will quickly become very repetitive. Carried through at any decent level, such an enterprise can also consume a large amount of your wordage limit. You need to configure your thesis question and set up any initial literature review which you do so that you can legitimately restrict your work to considering only two, or at most three main lines of argument. Another problem with an argumentative approach is that it may not sit very comfortably in disciplines which adopt a normal science approach. Those with a hegemonic mainstream view built up by the careful accumulation of work within a single accepted paradigm. Argumentatively structured thesis can be unattractive for students from more consensual societies where overt disagreements can seem somewhat vulgar or wrong-headed. And since scholars often tend to self-select themselves into groupings of like-minded people, it will sometimes be very hard to stand up and treat as credible a view considered deviant by your local department's orthodoxy, perhaps even anathema to it. Finally, it can be difficult to identify and develop an effective argumentative approach which is close-fitting around your thesis question at an early stage of your research. At the start of your effort, you may tend to focus on disputes that are too broadly drawn or too conventionally specified. Again, a tendency that is exaggerated where people author long introductory literature reviews rather than snappy focused ones. Matrix Patterns To get more articulated organizational structures for neatly organizing eight or so chapters, you can combine any of the three approaches above. 
there are four pairs of possible combinations. Analytic plus argumentative. Analytic plus descriptive. Argumentative plus analytic. Argumentative plus descriptive. In each pair, the first approach listed is the primary or top-level organizing principle, grouping together a set of chapters. The other part of the pair is the subsidiary or second-tier organizing principle, explaining the sequence of chapters within each of the top-tier groupings. Figure 3.6 shows this distinction in a diagrammatic way for the two matrix patterns combining analytic and argumentative approaches. If the analytic dimension is primary, then arguments and interpretations are used in pairs of chapters pulled together by systematic or causal or functional criteria. If the argumentative dimension is primary, then each contrasting broad view is considered in turn broken down into its component aspects. Matrix patterns involving a second tier descriptive organization of chapters are very common in doctoral thesis. Here, authors recognize that they cannot just pick up an external or real world pattern or phenomena and use it to structure their thesis without risking a random shopping list appearance. So analytic categories or a consideration of different argumentative positions are used to provide the primary structure of the thesis. But within groups of chapters, a narrative or historical or guidebook pattern is then followed. In my experience, a descriptive approach is rarely or never used in a matrix approach as the primary organizing dimension. People who like using externally given structures tend just to do a wholly descriptive thesis. A matrix approach offers many advantages for doctoral students. It almost always generates enough categories to slot your chapters into. Figure 3.6a shows a six-box pattern combining a primary argumentative dimension and a secondary analytic dimension compartmentalizing each approach into economic, political, and cultural boxes, in this case. Using this kind of graphical planning device is helpful because it will alert you to an alternative sequence shown in figure 3.6b, where you go across rows first and then move down to the columns second. Here, the primary dimension is the analytic one and the argumentative dimension is secondary. Exploiting the two-dimensional space of a blank matrix like this means that you will often be able to pull together more strands of your thinking than can be accommodated in the more usual simple linear approach. Either way, figure 3.6 would generate enough boxes to arrange the core chapters of a thesis in a strong and robust pattern. Add a lead-in chapter at the beginning 
and a lead out chapter at the end to this core and you would have an effective eight chapter PhD. Conclusions These three cuts on the macro structure of your thesis each matter a great deal. Putting them together often entails making quite complex judgments, which can be hard to resolve. There is never just one best way of organizing a long text. One consideration may pull you in a particular direction and another in a divergent fashion. When you do settle on a pattern for your work, there will always be at least one other viable alternative structure that you could use and some debate in your own mind about whether to switch over. Welcome then to the world of permanent authoring dilemmas of which this is only the first. Some of the same issues recur at the micro level of organizing individual chapters or papers, albeit in a more manageable way.